Hello, listeners, and welcome to another interview-only special edition of the podcast. Our interview this week is with Professor Adam McLeod. We know you're going to enjoy this one, and we wanted you to hear the whole thing. So here it is in its entirety, our interview with Adam McLeod. Professor Adam McLeod is a professor of law at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. He's been a visiting fellow in the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University and a Thomas Edison Fellow in the Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property at George Mason University. He is co-editor of Christie and Martin's Jurisprudence and Foundations of Law. He's the author of Property and Practical Reason and of articles, essays, and book reviews in peer-reviewed journals and law reviews in the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. His most recent book is The Age of Selfies, Reasoning about rights when the stakes are personal. Please welcome Professor Adam McLeod to the podcast. Adam, thank you for joining us on the show. We're so grateful that you're here. And we should have, I realize we should have had you on every episode from the beginning, probably as a referee, considering the aim of our show and everything you've written about civil discourse. So thanks for being here. No, I'm grateful to be invited, guys. Thanks for having me. So let's dive in. First question, what is your background and how were you first introduced to politics? Uh, well, my background is um, I am a uh, farmhand who became a lawyer, who became a law professor. That's a short version. Uh, I have the great fortune of having a job that I love to do. Uh, I teach in a law school during the school year. And then uh, I also get to teach seminars around the United States and Europe in uh, legal philosophy during the summers, um, present academic papers and so forth. But uh, yeah, I had, I had exposure to politics. Um, at, a, at a relatively young age, uh, largely uh, through issues that, took, uh, that I took an interest in that became political. So issues pertaining to um, social issues in, uh, primarily. And then over time, I began to see some of the uh, deeper uh, implications in uh, institutions and the, the role of institutions in society and, uh, and institutions such as schools and universities and the family and so forth and the important role that they play, and how they interact with government and with law became really my primary interest. Um, and so I, I do a lot with the subject of private law and private ordering. What role can um, institutions and associations, as, as small as this one that you guys have, um, all the way up to you know transnational corporations like Facebook and Amazon and Google, what role do they play in shaping uh, society, societal norms, societal practices and cultures and expectations. Um, and and it's, it's not something that uh, people always pay attention to, but it's a, it's a hugely important area of, of uh, political formation. And never more than now. And with that, obviously, we're going to need to have the professor back, Rob, because <laughs> we have a lot of uh, upcoming podcasts on some of those exact topics. What political party do you align yourself with? Uh, I registered as a Republican at the age of 18 when I was first uh, old enough to vote. I'm no longer registered with either party. Um, I tend to vote uh, Republican largely because uh, my convictions on certain issues preclude me from voting for most Democrats, certainly at the national level. In Alabama, where I now reside, uh, that's not the case. Um, there are Democrats that I, that I can feel comfortable voting for. Um, and of course, there are Republicans that I can feel com comfortable voting for. Um, it's not it's uh, it's it's not uh, the kind of place like Massachusetts, where I lived earlier uh, in my life, um, where the Democratic Party is committed to things that, um, uh, in you know, my conscience wouldn't allow me to support. 
this is a show that was built on the premise of civil discourse being possible despite being in such a time of great divisiveness. I know that in January of this year, you gave a talk at the Acton Institute on this exact premise. The question is, do you think our goal is possible or should we just quit and give up right now? Well, I know it's possible. And I know it's possible because I have, um, on a regular basis, very civil and productive discourse with people with whom I disagree. Um, some of them I disagree um, profoundly, radically about in- issues that we think are very important. Um, and yet we're able to carry on in mutual respect and find places where we can find agreement. Colleagues in the legal academy and in the academy generally friends, longtime friends. I grew up in a part of the country that tends to be um, a pretty far to the left in New England. I now live in a part of the country that's pretty far to the right, Alabama. And so I've got friends across the political spectrum. Um, and it's, it's d- definitely possible if um, you adhere to a, a couple of principles, which of course um, I discuss in my new book, in which I discussed in that lecture at the Acton Institute, you know, things like don't make it personal. Make sure you're responding to the person's actual argument and not attributing to them premises that they're not trying to advance and those sorts of basic principles. It's definitely possible. And I think it's needed now more than ever. I think our differences today are growing more and more radical. And radical, I use in the classical sense of going all the way to the, to the root, to, down to first principles or first things. So it's really, really critical that we be able both to examine the, the first things that we believe, our own convictions and the nature of those convictions and where they lead us, um, but then also to understand the, the first principles that are driving our friends and neighbors' views and, 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 uh, and speeches and actions. That makes a lot of sense. How have your views changed since January and since your book, The Age of Selfies, was written, if they've changed at all? Yeah, I think in general they've not. I, I am, uh, I think, like most uh, Americans today, a little bit dismayed would be too strong, maybe disappointed in the way things have gone uh, over the last uh, three or four months, not necessarily in terms of current events, but in terms of the way that uh, Americans are talking about them. And I do think that there's a lot of talking right now and not a lot of listening or understanding. I emphasize um, in this book and in that lecture um, that I, I, in the short term, I'm not optimistic that we're going to be able to agree on some of our most contentious issues. And so I think the project for now is to learn or really relearn, because generations of people in the West have done this before and done it quite well, how to disagree well. And by disagree well, I mean genuinely and fully understand each other, understand um, what this person sitting across from me who holds a view that's quite different from mine and maybe even antithetical to mine um, is trying to tell me. What is it that they actually believe? Why do they believe it? Why do they find those beliefs attractive, maybe even compelling, maybe even uh, a non-negotiable? Um, there's something there which is driving them uh, to hold this view and to advance it, and, uh, and it behooves me to, to understand that. And then I think it's possible for us to figure out ways to to get on uh, with the business of getting on with life. Um, and there's there's a whole piece of this which has to do with institutional pluralism and being able to build institutions which might pursue different goals and different aspects of human flourishing and maybe pursue the same aspects in different ways, uh, which is also uh, important. But it's it has been um, somewhat dispiriting to see 
um, none of that being pursued, <laughs> at least certainly um, not by elite institutions or the ones that tend to be driving um, and, and elite political leaders, uh, the ones who seem to be driving the conversation. There's uh, quite a lot of finger pointing, quite a lot of disparagement, quite a lot of ad hominem, a lot of heat, very little light, it seems, uh, lately. And uh, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily um, lead me to conclude that the project is is lost or, or futile, but uh, it's certainly um, it's certainly uh, going to be very 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 difficult uh, to do this going forward. You hear about these stories from Washington years and years ago. These dinner parties they would hold with people from both sides of the aisle, and they'd come and they would discuss these issues, and they'd leave as friends. And it's really hard to imagine that happening now. Yeah, and and the same thing is true in um, in the domain in which I work, the universities. Uh, it is it, and we, we, you know, I've been I've been in this business now for thirteen years. I was a practicing lawyer before that. Um, even as recently as thirteen years ago, it's not uncommon for people of differing views uh, within the legal academy and within the academy generally to have uh, really really fruitful. Um, sometimes frictionful <laughs> conversations, but um, but you know productive. It's inc- growing increasingly rare. There uh, there seems to be uh, part of it is, has to do with things that have nothing to do with our political discourse. Some of it has to do with academic specialization. That different segments of the academy are just sort of stuck in their silos and don't really get out of them very much. But a lot of it, really, frankly, is that uh, almost everything seems to be uh, politicized, if you will everything seems to become a zero-sum game. Um, and so then everything becomes a matter of uh, power politics, uh, even within the university, which is, um, you know, is really a shame. And you see it in other segments of society as well. I, I do think there has been a deterioration. In the book, I, I explain that part of the, a big reason why is that there are, there are re- intellectual and moral resources which enable us to disagree well. Um, that were sustained for centuries, um, not evenly, not consistently. There were some generations that did it better than others. But, you know, if you go back to the trial of Socrates, if you look at the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, if you look at the medieval scholastics, you see this sort of central strand of discourse and of, uh, you know, all the great classics, of course, were dialogues, right? Um, Dialogues between people who disagreed from uh, you know, from Plato's Republic to Thomas More's Utopia, through uh, you know Shakespeare's plays, uh, you have people putting forward differing views, sometimes conflicting views, in a way that exposes the strengths and weaknesses of each. Uh, and the objective, of course, is to get at what's the truth of the matter ultimately. Um, and we've we've lost uh, a lot of that, unfortunately. And uh, and the results sort of speak for themselves, don't they? My opinion on this whole thing has been that there are cultural differences that have been there all along for for probably hundreds of years here. But because of the internet and how interconnected we all are, we are getting bombarded with other people's opinions that we weren't bombarded with even 30 years ago. So for instance, if you grew up in Queens, you had no idea what somebody in Wyoming was thinking or doing outside of their representative in Congress. Now, because everyone has a opinion online, we are suddenly bombarded with the fact that we are thinking much differently than we ever realized we were. And maybe 
the irony is that we actually are probably more connected now than ever. I mean, we all pretty much walk around with computers in our pockets. Like we have more in common now than ever, but it seems like we have more differences than ever. And what is your opinion on that? Technology certainly plays a significant role. Um, Perhaps it plays that role. Although I I do think that people, generally speaking, uh, a generation or two ago, um, we're not ignorant of um, cultural and ideological differences. I mean, if you think about, for example, the greatest generation who literally went around the world uh, fighting uh, fascism, um, and then those of the next generation who literally went around the world fighting um, communism and knew about the dangers of totalitarianism because they saw it firsthand. And so there, there's a sense in which um, the contrasts were were pretty clear in their mind. Um, they knew what they were about. They knew what they were against, um, and they had no illusions. I, I do think that the 20th century in the United States, anyway, was marked by a certain um, false sense of neutrality. That you have your sort of, um, uh, you know, Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather figure who sort of sits atop the mountaintop of of, of information and knowledge. Um, and sort of uh, arbitrates what is objectively true and neutral. And so you see this in, in political philosophy, uh, for example, in the ideas of uh, political philosopher John Rawls, that there are these public reasons that we can all agree to that are uncontroversial. And we just leave the controversial stuff like morality and religion out of the public square. I, I think that was just a false. I think that was false. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that there were differences that were sort of swept aside by what's often referred to as political liberalism, uh, which is not the same as small l uh, uh, liberalism, you know, li- civil liberties, the idea of a, a state which secures civil rights. And, but political liberalism, this idea that was dominant in the 20th century, that we have this neutral public square where we can get together on grounds that are, um, that are, that are, that are neutral as between different conceptions of the good or different religious traditions or different moral traditions was, I think, a false idea. Um, and I think there is a, some benefit that, uh, to be had from its demise. Um, we can be now much more candid than uh, gen- earlier generations, at least in the 20th century. Uh, but, th- you know, th- this isn't the first time that we've been candid about radical differences. Of course, there were very radical differences in the 19th century in the issue of slavery, very radical differences during the progressive era about the eugenics movement and about um, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and so forth. Um, and so we've had these radical differences before. Um, I think what we've lost is, is the intellectual tradition and vocabulary for how to get at what our differences actually are. And so what we often end up doing is just attributing to the other person nefarious motivations that they might or might not actually have. Um, so you're just a bad person, and so I don't have to listen to you. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's not the way to go about it either. So, um, so you know, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, um, to see uh, political liberalism dead and buried. I, I am a liberal in the small L sense. I, I believe in civil liberties. I do um, insist that civil liberties should be grounded in, um, in the truth about what it means to be a human being and the sources of human dignity and what our rights are, in fact, uh, in reason and by nature. Um, and so those sorts of conversations are hard to have. And so uh, it's important for us to recover the the intellectual uh, sources from which they sprang so that we can we can think deeply about them. Yeah, that points to another loss of the university system 
in our country's trend towards trade programs in lieu of studying the classics and learning how to be people of civility. Yeah, and and it doesn't have to be just the classics, of course. You don't have to go far back far. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail is um uh call it an instant classic, if you will. Yeah, you know, it's it's not that long ago, but he's articulating uh and in fact cites uh with with approbation Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas for the proposition that an unjust law uh is is a defective law or no law at all. This tradition is very much alive in American um civic discourse and political discourse as recently as a half century ago. So yeah, so if if you have students who decide to go to college uh and their objective is simply to get a degree that will enable them to make a lot of money and they're never exposed to kings that are for Birmingham jail or they never think critically about the meaning of the words of the Declaration of Independence that all are men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. If they never grapple with uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural and the claims made there about the sin that both North and South shared in the institution of slavery, if they never think about Frederick Douglass's conception of the Declaration as an unpaid promissory note, they're worse off. And they're worse equipped to deal in an honest and productive way with the controversies that we have today. Why do you think our modern discourse surrounds morality instead of neutral political issues? Should politics be a moral enterprise? And would you say that morality is inherent in the documents written by the founding fathers, and that's why it's so inherent in our system now? Uh, I think you can't avoid uh, having moral foundations for your views, whatever they are. Um, and so earlier I said the idea of political liberalism in the 20th century, the idea that there's neut this neutral public square. Um, well, the, it turns out the neutral public square itself was founded on controversial moral ideas. So there are a lot of societies, for example, today, which uh, view the idea of, uh, of equality um, as a false idea. You don't have to travel far around the world to find them. Um, there are some of them in our hemisphere. That's just one example. Um, but uh, the presumption of innocence or natural liberty, uh, we take it for granted. Um, other cultures and other societies don't. So there is a moral foundation for our commitment to liberty and equality. Um, that's just unavoidable. The question is, do we examine why we, do we think that people ought to be entitled to a presumption of liberty and, and innocence? Why do we think that people are radically equal, persons are radically equal um, in their status before the law and ought to remain radically equal in their status before the law, that we ought to have equal protection of the law, that we ought to um, not, uh, not have uh, unjust uh, differentiation between persons? And now, suddenly, that these ideas are contested, we find in our own society, in our own culture, um, in our own political communities, uh, it becomes imperative uh, to, to recover those moral foundations, or at least to examine them. Um, so in a sense, the, the collapse of political liberalism is an opportunity, isn't it? Politics was always a moral enterprise. Um, and I think what we're seeing from, you know, name a group, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, Antifa uh, on the left, or um, on, you know, on the right, certain groups that are committed to classical education, or uh, you know, the Federal Society. Uh, I think what you're what you're witnessing is that the rhetoric is grasping for something solid and true about our moral duties to each other and what we owe each other. Um, and there's this increasing awareness that we do, in fact, owe each other something. And it can't just be 
to go out and vote. It can't just be to have economic efficiency in our economic and market institutions. It can't just be that uh, we, you know, uh, wave and smile nicely um, and, uh, and avoid talking about religion and politics. That can't just be the sum of it, right? There has to be something deeper going on. And I think people increasingly realize that, but they, you know, having not much, spent much time studying their own political and intellectual traditions, um, they're not well equipped to, to examine what those deeper foundations are. So with that being said, how do we disagree well while avoiding personal judgments and the utilization of morality as a weapon? Yeah, and, and utilization of morality as a weapon is certainly a danger because moral claims often are asserted as, uh, as trump cards, right? Uh, I, I, know the, I know the morally right thing to do, and I'm telling you what that is. I'm asserting it, and, uh, and so your, your differences with me must not just be a matter of difference of, of prudence or a different judgment or a different assessment of the facts. But, uh, but the reason you disagree with me is because you have a moral failing. You fail to see as clearly as I do what is the morally right answer. Now, there certainly are some questions, some questions on which there is one uniquely right answer. Um, and in retrospect, we can see that's the case with slavery. On, in retrospect, we can say that's the case with eugenics and with the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and with other things that we as a political community thought we could tolerate. Um, not all of us, but, but many of us thought we could tolerate at the time. And, and we came to see, um, as earlier generations, frankly, had seen, that those things were intolerable. So that is the case. But it doesn't have to be the case all the time. It doesn't have to be the case with everything. And even on some issues like abortion, where both sides agree, they disagree pretty radically about what the right answer is, but both the pro-life and the pro-abortion rights side agree that there's a uniquely right answer. But that there is a uniquely right answer to the question whether abortion should be a concern for law, public law, does not resolve the question what that solution should be. There doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all solution even on a question uh, as contort contentious as, as abortion. This came out during the presidential debate, I don't know if you remember, in 2016, when, uh, when Donald Trump was asked uh, about uh, punishing mothers who have abortions, and he said, oh yeah, punish them. And the pro-life movement recoiled and said, no, we've never advocated for that, right? Um, what we want is to regulate the doctors. We don't, we've never wanted to, to punish uh, mothers. That's just a misunderstanding of what, our, of what our view is. So, you know, the first thing always, always is not to attribute to the, your interlocutor, the person with whom you're disagreeing, uh, some view that they don't actually hold, which means that our first job should be to listen, right? And listen, and, and listen well and understand what exactly are they claiming um, and not claim too much uh, on their behalf. And then, and then secondly, uh, it's, it's critically important that we understand what are the, the underlying principles or moral motivations which lead them to those judgments with which we with which you disagree. And so those, the, it's, those are not sufficient steps, but they're necessary first steps. Um, so, it, so in my book, uh, I give some examples of uh, different, they're sort of um, caricatures of, of people you might meet in, you know, you've got your environmentalist, you've got your, your intersectionality or identitarian, you've got your, um, uh, your religious person, um, you've got your law and order guy, 
And it's really easy to sort of um, just disparage them as, uh, well, the environmentalist is just a wacko tree hugger who wants to kill people's jobs. Or, you know, the religious lady is just, uh, just a crazy theocrat who wants to impose her views on everybody. But if you actually stop and listen to what their concerns are, you begin to realize that uh, the environmentalist is actually deeply concerned about um, sustainability, for example, because he believes that he and we have a responsibility to steward the resources um, that, we, that are in our care um, because they're finite and limited. And that's not such a, you know, a, a radical or, or insensible concern. So if you address the concern that people actually have and actually express, rather than just sort of turn them into a straw man or try to disparage them off the top, um, that's, that's, a, uh, that's, that, that's getting a long way toward disagreeing well. Yeah, and it's, it's great advice, and I'll be enrolling at Faulkner tomorrow. I need more, <laughs> You're I need more of that. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Come on in and audit. So to bring things back to current events, in your talk, you discussed the change in the definition of equality. It's obviously become a subject of much conversation in the past weeks surrounding sort of the mass apologies that we're seeing everywhere. Do you believe these apologies are necessary? How do we reframe what is being asked of society by the black community? Well, it's certainly the case that some apologies are necessary. So, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I live in Alabama. Uh, Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevens' organization in Montgomery, where I live, uh, has done uh, really a, a remarkable service documenting uh, researching and documenting what happened after the fall of Reconstruction in 1877 up until about 1950, uh, nearly 5,000 lynchings uh, across the South and other parts of the United States. Of course, the Black Codes, uh, you know, dispossession of, um, of land held by uh, former slaves and other Black Americans. So there are, there are certainly um, discrete particular instances of uh, really grievous injustices, which it is important for us to uh, learn about, to confront, to repent of as a people. And I think it is the case that we have not always done an adequate job of, uh, of doing that. Um, I, think, I think we did of slavery. Uh, and in fact, of course, we fought a bloody civil war. Lincoln's idea expressed in the second inaugural was that the, all the blood spilt on the battlefields of the of the Civil War uh, was to atone for the blood drawn by the lash uh, on the slaves' back. Um, we've not had a similar reckoning for the period um, from the end of Reconstruction until the Civil Rights Movement in the fifties and sixties. So you can you can imagine, for example, the you know the calls for reparations. For example, uh, I'm I'm not a I'm not a proponent of reparations. I think it's a bad idea. But there are certain particular reparations that I think would be not only justified, but required. Uh, if, 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 for example, you can show that a, that a particular uh, family has been dis dispossessed of their, of their lands, that would be, uh, I think, a very strong claim for reparations and maybe even for restoration, depending on the circumstances. The, the bigger principle that you, that you bring up, which is an important one, is the idea of equality. During the, the American founding, uh, the idea of equality was relatively uncontested. Now, I say relatively because, of course, there were people like Jefferson, for example, who um, espoused radical political and, and natural equality and yet owned slaves. Now, Jefferson, of course, understood the tension uh, in his uh, earlier correspondence and in his earlier entreaties to King George III um, expressed the view that slavery was contrary to natural law and natural justice. And yet, 
he still owns slaves, right? So, um, so there, there was a failure to live up to our own ideals. But the ideals, I think, uh, were more or less well understood and agreed upon. There was a very different conception of equality, which dominated the 20th century, uh, which grew out of the progressive movement early in the 20th century and came to uh, predominate through things like uh, various uh, national welfare programs, through um, civil rights uh, decisions of the Supreme Court on uh, particularly in crim- constitutional criminal procedure cases. That conception of equality was relatively unstable, um, largely because it was in tension with the earlier understanding of, of equality before the law. Now what we have is a call for a, yet a third different kind of equality, which is equality of result. Um, and I think that actually is a new thing, and I think it's problematic for a number of reasons. But again, I would hesitate to make that a universal claim. There are certainly um, instances in which uh, it's not unreasonable, maybe even it is uh, justified, to take into account um, someone's background, for example, in uh, various affirmative action programs or other ways in which we try to level the playing field. But I would need to know more about the case, and I would want, you know, before agreeing to particular cases. I, I guess another way to just say this more sh- more shortly is I don't think there's a single universal principle of equality which can resolve all cases the same. I do think that there are better and worse conceptions of equality, and that might be a conversation you guys are interested in having, uh, whether in this podcast or some other time. Uh, but it's but it's critically important for us to understand what we mean when we speak of equality, because we don't all mean the same thing. Um, some of us are, you know, speaking in, in the sort of original founding sense of, uh, uh, of equal natural rights and equality before the law. Others are speaking in terms of the sort of 20th century sense of equal civil rights. And then others are speaking in terms of equality of result or equality of consequences. So that's an important thing we need to get clear before our mind. Um, and then I think uh, it's, it's, help, it's always helpful to go about this not in abstract terms, not make some universal claim about what equality means for, say, persons of a particular race, but to get down to concrete cases. Okay, what are we actually talking about when we talk about affirmative action um, in this institutional setting, in this university for this particular group of people? Um, you know, it might be different for uh, a state university in a state that had uh, legal segregation, for example than for a, say, a private university that was founded by abolitionists. So let, you know, let's, talk about, let's talk about real cases. Let's talk about the practical question that we're actually trying to, trying to address. And I think when you do that, you find that often uh, there's a lot more agreement uh, than you anticipated, uh, that abstractions sometimes tend to get, uh, to get in the way uh, of, of genuine understanding. It's really interesting what you said about Jefferson, because uh, I was just talking to another friend about this. Um, you know, there's sort of a belief on the left that all the founding fathers were slaveholders, and therefore, perhaps they weren't as good a men as we hold them up to be. But uh, Jefferson was very conflicted about slavery, and uh, that was apparent in um, in a lot of documents that I've read recently about that. It's something that I don't think I learned about in school. Yeah, if you if you read the stuff that he wrote in Virginia prior to 1776, it's very clear that uh, he sees. And of course, and and again, the reason is because he's reading the tradition. He's reading Aristotle, um, who was in favor of slavery, but laid the foundation for later abolitionist arguments that you start to see in embryonic form in in early jurists like Justinian, and then later in natural law theorists like Aquinas. And then by the time you get 
to, um, uh, to the modern era, you see full-fledged abolitionist movements uh, and, and intellectual trends growing out of uh, those resources. Of course, everybody, f- uh, many people forget that there were three drafters of the Declaration. Uh, one, Jefferson w- owned slaves. Um, one, Franklin uh, benefited from slaveholding. Um, but then John Adams, who was the third drafter, um, uh, was an abolitionist and never owned a slave. And um, himself was, uh, was quite emphatic that, uh, that slavery was, was a, 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 an abomination. So, um, you know, these guys, uh, it, it's, it's easy to caricature them as well, right? Just like we often try to caricature um, and disparage the people uh, uh, who are sitting across the table from us or, or in a Facebook comment thread. You mentioned uh, a belief in natural authority uh, in relation to your classroom. Uh, what do you mean by this? And what are the practical applications of this outside a classroom scenario? Does this exist? Yeah, great. So one of our problems right now is we don't agree um, about authority. There's massive distrust of those who, who purport to speak um, with authority. Um, and you see this both on the right and the left, although it looks different uh, on the right than it does on the left. Um, on the right, you tend to see a distrust of um, the authority of expertise. Um, and um, you, you tend to see uh, people who say something like, look, um, the experts, um, maybe they know a lot about how to run a regression analysis, or they know um, a lot about some particular um, narrow subdiscipline within their academic field, uh, but they don't really have much practical wisdom. Um, and they show this every time they try to uh, run other people's lives. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we saw this uh, in, in pretty dramatic, this, this sort of sentiment in pretty dramatic form um, during the coronavirus lockdowns. Um, and then immediately after that, you saw erupt on the left a distrust of the authority of civic institutions, um, institutions such as the family um, and the church. Um, a lot of what uh, the, some of the you know, rhetoric that you hear coming out of uh, organizations like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, the authority of nature, um, um, the idea uh, that, that there are natural rights or that there are natural sexes, uh, which are normative. Or, so, so there's a, quite a lot of distrust of authority right now. And it's certainly the case that uh, some authority has been abused. Um, by some people, that some people, many people abuse their authority. We know that to be the case um, because they're people um, and people do stupid things and people do evil things. Um, It's also the case that some authorities are artificial, right? We have to have political institutions to enable us to get along with each other and to make decisions about what is to be done and to pass laws and to adjudicate those laws and to enforce those laws. But, you know, at bottom, political institutions are artificial. Um, but my claim in the book is that not all authority is artificial. Um, that in fact, some authority grows out of a common good which is basic and intrinsic um, and is determined by the nature of the enterprise that we're pursuing together. So, if you, so I give the example of my classroom. Why do my students sit in my classroom? Well, they have a practical objective, a practical problem they want to solve. They want to learn the law. So knowledge of the law, then, is the good toward which our enterprise of studying in my classroom and the studying that they do in preparation for coming to class is oriented. That's our common good. 
And we all, every, every, every time we get together in that classroom, we share that common good. It's not a matter of zero-sum warfare where uh, my good comes at someone else's expense or we're, we're not trying to aggregate the greatest number of goods for the greatest number of persons. No, it's a shared good. All of us benefit from the common pursuit of this common objective, this common good of knowledge of the law. Well, how are we going to achieve this? Well, somebody has to decide what we're going to read. Somebody has to decide what the rules are for our study. Somebody has to decide how they're going to be evaluated in the achievement of their objective um, and lots of other things. Someone's got to order this enterprise and come up with a plan of action and lay down rules and expectations that we're all going to follow. Who's that going to be? Is it going to be the kid who's a first-year law student like I was when I first uh, started law school? I literally had just come off the farm and had been you know, lugging water pipe and driving a delivery truck the week before. Um, well, no, of course not. It's going to be the, the person, the lawyer who is knowledgeable, who has thought deeply about the law and about the animating jurisprudential principles underlying the law, who uh, you know, has, has experience practicing the law. So the authority that I exercise in the classroom is not a mere power relation. I'm not just asserting power over my students artificially for the purpose of oppressing them or keeping them down or, you know, humiliating them. No, I mean, uh, it, it's certainly the case that some professors abuse their authority, um, but there is a natural authority there. And then by natural, I mean uh, inherently oriented toward the good of the common enterprise. Um, and if we don't recognize the need for that authority, and if we don't defer to that authority, we can't get on with the project of, of, of achieving our common goal, which is learning the law. Now, you can scale that up only so far, but there are, you know, the, the classroom is not the only setting in which authority comes naturally. And then by the time you get up to the, to the level of artificial authority, political institutions, the best political institutions are going to track natural authority, right? The best executive is going to look an awful lot like a parent. Um, the best, uh, you know, the best judge is going to look an awful lot like a teacher or a scholar is going to be, he or she is going to be reflective and think carefully about what, what the practical judgment should be. And, um, legislatures are supposed to be deliberative bodies. So they're supposed to look a lot like the book club or the, or the discussion group in a sense, right? I mean, there's ways in which they're different, obviously, but there, there are common goods toward which these, uh, these political and civil authorities are, are oriented. So this is more of a political question in nature, given what the big Supreme Court um, decision that just came down in the last couple of days. I personally am somewhat fascinated with libertarian arguments. So I thought, just out of curiosity, I'd ask you this and see what you said. There's a libertarian argument that says that the Western free market system is sort of the greatest arbiter of morality because it essentially places the question of morality inside the court of public opinion. So for instance, if a bake shop decides it won't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding because it's against their religious principles, a lot of libertarians will say that this is a matter the government should stay out of and instead be decided by the free market. If enough people are, of course, outraged by the bake shop's decision to not bake a cake for the same-sex wedding, then business will decrease at the bake shop and either force them to change their policy or go out of business. But if we replace same-sex wedding with an African-American wedding, for instance, and the bake shop refuses to bake the wedding cake, obviously that is illegal discrimination. My question for you is, where do we draw the line when it comes to when the government should decide what is illegal or immoral and when it should be left to the forces of the free market? 
Yeah, that's great. So, um, so I, I don't assent to the, the sort of radical libertarian argument that everything should be left up to market forces. And b- before we dive into the wedding vendor cases, you know, it, uh, one, one area where um, I think this is most clearly seen as problematic is um, you, you have libertarian calls, for example, to have a market in uh, human organs. Um, you know, right now you can't sell your your uh, your organs, your kidney for a kidney, for example, uh, to someone who needs it. Um, but you can donate it. And but you know, libertarians say, look, we want to we want to have a market alienable uh, resources uh, in say used cars or a secondary market in mortgages. Why not have the same for human organs? And I think most people recoil at that and say, no, there are just some things that shouldn't be left up to free market. And shouldn't be placed up for the highest bidder, and shouldn't simply be a matter of supply and demand. Um, so then the question is: Is that the case in the wedding vendors' cases? Um, and I think most people have the intuition that it's certainly the case with respect to race. Well, why is that? Well, the simple answer is goes back to um, our, our foundations of our legal tradition, which is known as the common law. This is the law that uh, we inherited from Great Britain uh, at the time of the American founding. Um, goes back all the way through the English Bill of Rights, through Magna Carta, all the way back before the Norman Con- Conquest, um, to the, the norms and institutions which uh, are really foundational to, to our legal uh, institutions and, and norms today. And this includes things like the civil jury trial, um, private property rights. And so we have institutions in place to adjudicate when someone has exercised their economic liberties wrongfully. And the common law tradition taught that to discriminate in a place of public accommodation, um, discriminate in your home all you want. That was, the, that was the law's view. There are some places which should just be beyond the reach of the law. Your home is one of those places. And there are very sound reasons for allowing people to act wrongly and immorally in their own homes. Um, the biggest reason is we just don't think the state um, or officials have any business coming into your home um, and adjudicating um, uh, the, the morality of your conduct there. Again, with limitations, right? There certainly domestic violence or child abuse would be uh, instances in which uh, uh, this intervention would be justified. But for the most part, if you want to be a bigot and a racist in your own home, fine. Uh, the, the law should have nothing to say about that. What about in a place of public accommodation? When you open your private property up to the public and give to the public a license to enter. And the line that the common law drew, which it, to me is very, very sensible, is this. Now, the common law said, if you, uh, if you grant someone a license to come into your home for a dinner party, you can kick them out for any reason or no reason at all. The law just has nothing to say about that. If you grant a license to the public to come into your house, um, say you're opening up as a pub or, um, or a restaurant, you can still terminate their license, but you have to offer a reason. And if they bring a, an action, it, common law would have been known as an action in a subset. If they bring an action against you saying that your reason was not a valid reason, that it was rationally related to the purpose for which you held out your business, that would go to a civil jury. And the jury would then make two determinations. One is, what was your actual intention, your actual reason uh, for excluding them? And was that rationally related to the purpose for which you held out your business? Was that a valid reason justifying your termination of the license? And here's the thing about race. It's never valid. It's just never rationally related to the purpose for which you opened your business. You know, for the purpose of giving haircuts and serving beer um, and whatever else you're open for, 
it just doesn't matter whether this person is uh, is African American or Asian American or European American or whatever. Okay, so then the wedding vendor cases get complicated for two reasons. So say we stick with that common law standard. Now things get complicated because states change the common law standard by statute, or or sometimes they just declare the common law standard, but then courts reinterpret it. But so setting aside setting that aside, let's just stick with this idea that um, that a public accommodation license can be terminated, but only for a valid reason that the owner um, offers. So is there a valid reason in these cases? Well, the owner, uh, of course, the, well, let's start with the, the, the customer. The customer in these cases says, no, um, they're discriminating against me because I am um, lesbian or because I am gay or because I'm transgendered. And the owner says, uh, no, that's not the reason. The reason is uh, I, was pr- I, I served this person. And, and, you know, in, in, in many of these cases, in fact, there's a longstanding relationship between the Baronel Stutzman case in Washington, for example, or other cases where there was a longstanding relationship between the business owner and the customer. I was perfectly willing to serve this person. I had no objection to them being gay or lesbian or transgender. Um, what I couldn't do is participate in their wedding because that would be to express what I understand to be a falsehood about the nature of marriage. So the first problem we have is we have a factual dispute about what is the intention or the reason being offered for the termination of the license. And then we have a second problem, which is, is that uh, relevant to the operation of the business? And the customer says, all you're doing is selling cakes or all you're doing is making floral arrangements. Um, and that's just, it's just not relevant to that. So it's not a valid reason. And the owner says, well, that's not all I'm doing. My business is uh, not just a way of making money, but it's also uh, an expression of my convictions. It's a way that I express in some cases like the, you know, the cake artist case in Colorado. Uh, uh, it's a way of expressing um, my own, my own uh, creativity and my own views and exercising my First Amendment uh, free speech rights. Um, and so then we have a radical moral disagreement uh, about what is, the, what is the enterprise? What is it that you're actually about? And, and is this reason relevant to that? So we have, we have, a, we have quite a, a, a radical break on the factual premise and a radical break on the moral or sort of jurisprudential premise. Um, and, so, and, th- and that's where the disagreement is. For now, I, I want to just leave it there and note that's a disagreement, and it's a really hard disagreement. But when you can get it to that stage, you, we at least are clear about what the disagreement is. And then, again, we can disagree well. We can disagree in good faith. And so we don't have to attribute to the, uh, to the, the claimant customer um, an intention to, to just uh, run around uh, you know, infringing people's religious liberty. And we don't have to attribute to the, uh, the business owner a motivation to be uh, a bigot or, or um, uh, uh, infringe other people's uh, civil liberties of equality. Fantastic answer to a very hard question. So now we're going to lighten things up a little bit. We got a speed round. We do it with each guest and those questions are as follows. Favorite author? Uh, G.K. Chesterton. That's, uh, I've long been a Chesterton fan. I like his quips. I love his books. Um, he's, a, he's a standard go-to for me. Favorite musical act? Uh, the Empire Brass. No, I'm going to go with the Canadian Brass there. Uh, I like the, the, the comedy they throw in, um, the, the little gags uh, that, that, they, that they throw in make it a quite, a, quite an enjoyable act. And now a question of much contention, Oxford or Cambridge? Cambridge University Press published my first book, so that one's easy. We're going with Cambridge. I will back that 100%. Favorite ice cream flavor? Strawberry. Uh, also, also an easy choice, especially on a hot summer day. Favorite place to visit? 
Uh, well, I love my great uh, home state of Maine. It is, uh, don't tell anybody, um, but it's, uh, it's really paradise. And uh, it's going to be uh, super enjoyable over the next couple of months as, uh, as the snow finally melts and things get warm up here. So um, uh, it's, a, it's one of the best kept secrets in the lower 48. Amazing. Well, Professor, thank you again for joining us. Your answers are so enlightening. I honestly wish I could pipe this interview into every home in America. Uh, we, of course, know about your most recent book, The Age of Selfies, Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal. I've read it, and I don't know anyone that wouldn't benefit from doing the same, especially right now. Please tell us what else you're working on and where we can find you on the interwebs. Uh, you can find my website at adamjmcleod.com. Um, I also have a public Facebook page, and, um, and uh, I'd be happy to, uh, to hear from your listeners. So thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Professor McLeod. We hope to have you back on the show soon. Great. I'd love to. Thanks so much. Have a great night. You as well. All right. That does it for our interview with Professor Adam McLeod. Don't forget to go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us your questions, we'll answer them on the air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. We'll see you next week, guys. Take care. <laughs>